Welcome to Dragon Talk. That's my favorite show. This is oh. the official oh. show, and that's why you must like it, audience member. Uh, I do, you... yes. <laughs> <laughs> You're very good at throwing your voice, Shelley Mazenoble. Do you like that? Yeah, much I'm better at it than I am. Very talented. Very um, talented. But this is a fantastic episode because we talked to Chris Perkins. Yes. About Icewind Dale, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. And it is a rhyme because he actually does recite a poem, if I remember uh, correctly. You know, I wish I thought to bring that up during the poem. But yes, that was quite delightful. It was a rhyme. I enjoyed uh, quite thoroughly. But we'll get to that in a little bit because, of course, Icewind Dale, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden is available everywhere right now. And it features some fun play in a frosty environ. You say fun. I say terrifying. Yes. They can be both the same. Horrible yes. and hilarious. I was looking for yes. alliteration there. Love alliteration. I love it. I so love it. Find out all about that, but there are two covers available. One has the standard cover by none other than Tyler Jacobson, who's done tons Beautiful. of other covers for us in the past, as well as Hydro 74's special uh, alternate cover that you can get only through game stores. Gorgeous. And it feels nice. Gorgeous. Yes. For sure. Beautiful. Both covers, though. My goodness. I know. It's very, very great. Knocked uh, it out of the park on this one. We just had D&D Celebration happen uh, all around the world, uh, which yes. was a gathering of the D&D community to play D&D, to learn about uh, fantastic topics from the many panels, including what's happening at the Dungeons & Dragons studio, how to play as uh, you know Asian characters, how to be a bard, how to be just awesome uh, in general. Uh, and so check out all those videos on demand now on the YouTube page for Dungeons & Dragons. And you can participate in some of all that fun stuff. My favorite bit over the weekend was A, playing in the epic with you uh, as yes. a, in our party. Your, your tabaxi was really super fun. Thank you. But I also really like the map. I love the inter- uh, interactive map of Icewind Dale, kind of like that Google Maps interface where you could zoom in, check out different uh, locales that are in the adventure, uh, and maybe even find some secrets. Yes, did you solve any puzzles? I did not. I wish I had, but I was paying attention to people solving puzzles for sure. Yeah, that was super cool. Yeah. I love it. Really I fun. Love it. Um, and there's great, great maps and everything out there uh, for people to enjoy. I actually just love the map that's included in the book. Um, it's a nice poster map. Uh, and it yeah. is very detailed. And I love it. And you're kind of a maps guy. I'm a maps person. I really do you like really maps. Yeah. 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 I have a, I'm, One of the pieces of swag I made for D&D was a cloth map of Icewind Dale uh, that people can either hang up and display or use as a scarf very fashionably. Oh, no way. Yeah. Yes, I'd way. like to see one of those. Yeah. Well, there are ones right here behind me. Uh, you can kind of see it. Looks like you're sticking your finger up that big dragon's nose. I am. That dragon is Ow. also from, uh, from Icewind Dale from our friends at WizKids. It's a huge uh, Chardolin dragon miniature. The word miniature is relative, of course. Huge and miniature. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Also on this episode, we get to hear uh, from Jeremy Crawford in a little bit. Wow, yeah. two great minds. Sage Advice is returning with a fun segment. We haven't recorded one of those in a while, so I'm excited about that. 
Um, but before we get to those fun things, I wanted to uh, let you know about Curse of Strahd Revamped coming in yes. stores October 20th. Yes. What, what do you know about that product? Well, there, I know we? that I got a sample of it delivered uh, to my house yesterday. You did? And I almost broke my back lifting the box because I'm like, what in the God's name is in here? Like, is Strahd actually in here? It's and he was. heavy. Oh. Yes, he actually is he- in there. <laughs> it is huge. I don't think that the product shots do it justice now that I think about it because we, we aren't really showing you the scale, but it's very big. It's like awesome, huge coffin-shaped box. And it is gorgeous. The artwork on it is stunning. And that thing is so jam-packed with goodies. It is, it's so fun. It's, it's just, it's a great value. It is a great adventure. It is going to be a great time. And it's coming out right before the spookiest time of year. So get your gaming group together and have some Halloween fun. Yeah, because as we are thinking about... How to have Halloween fun in this time of isolation. Uh, There's, you know, some of the fun of getting together and having parties is no more. But you can still get together with this box and have a party with your household playing through Course of Stroud. One of the most popular D&D adventures in this 5th edition era, written personally by Chris Perkins. Uh, So we'll have uh, an upcoming episode where we talk about this as well as what it was like uh, writing this back in uh, 2016, I think, right? Isn't that when it came out? Uh, Very cool. I can't wait. And October 20th, you're right, is right before Halloween. So perfect for autumnal storytelling. Yes. Yes. It's going to be fun. If you like traveling into the wilderness, Shelley, Mm -hmm. there is also, I was going to say tumble. (laughs) Oh, What's the actual product name? I think you know this better than I. Dungeon Master's Screen Kit. Wilderness Kit. Wilderness Kit. Dungeon Master's, yes, Wilderness Kit. Yeah, so it's a new Dungeon Master's screen that is jam-packed with information about how to run a hex crawl or a wilderness, uh, uh, you know, Campaign. A lot of our Dungeon Master Scream in the past, you know, were either adventure specific or uh, you know thematic in nature. This one is also thematic, but it's more about the the type of play that uh, you might have enjoyed in, say, like Tomb of Annihilation or something like that, where you're going through a wilderness, and so it has information and uh, stuff designed for that. A great companion uh, accessory for Dungeon Masters, just kind of increasing their kit out there. Yes. And it has a lot of, of little uh, bonuses as well, like dry erase sheets. You know who you know who loves dry erase sheets? Dungeon masters mm-hmm. love them. Better than dryer uh, sheets. Better than dryer sheets. They don't smell quite as good as a dryer sheet, and they don't keep your clothes static free. <laughs> but my goodness, they make running adventures really easy. They really do. Um, food and water tracker rules references. Um, 27 cards to keep track of conditions, initiative, and environmental effects. And then you might go, but Shelly, how am I going to hold all of those cards? And I'm going to say, don't worry. There's also a box included to hold all of those cards. Do you by any chance get a chamois? Uh. (laughs) But wait! (laughs) Act now and get a wilderness kit for your friend! Oh my god. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. $24.99. And that's kind of a 
What's it's a steal. Yeah. deal. Yeah, if you need to upgrade your uh, Dungeon Master screen, if you're running an adventure like that, it's a it's a good purchase for that for it's sure. A nice gift to give to your Dungeon Master. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. Annual uh, Dungeon Master Appreciation Day. I feel like uh, yeah, should be every day. So it should be every day that you play a game. So yeah, I not like gonna that. lie. When I um, saw that the price on that, I said, I think we made a mistake. Here. I think <laughs> I'm gonna buy it for you, Shelley, and then. That means you have to start being a dungeon master. On, I mean, on the I think that the way to start is just to hide behind a screen. <laughs> yeah. And just just see how it feels. Just get a feel for it behind the screen. That's not so a bad, I'm, not I'm a bad happy, idea. Get comfortable. Happy to do that. Doing that. <gasps> uh, going back to Icewind Dale, uh, we were happy enough to introduce a really cool product at PulseCon last week. Oh, my God. The Drist and Guinevar action figure. Yes. They look First so of all, cool. Was that not cool that they let us announce a product? I know, right? Oh, no. Uh, yes, but really cool six-inch um, action figures. Great detail. And, like, a crazy amount of accessories come with this action figure. Yeah. Uh, you can change Drist's, his hair, his face. It's kind of it, it's a little weird because you can just like pluck off his face and put on a new one. Um, it's different, different hands, expressions, right? Because he has different yes, expressions on his yes. face. Yeah, and like his hair, like whoosh, like it's like action hair or just like standing, looking badass hair. Um, but he's got his scimitars and he's got his um, scimitars. Wait, can, what? Just scimitars. No. I think the C is silent. Can we? Can can you take that part out? <laughs> Wait, how do you Ryan, say it? Ryan, don't take that part out. <laughs> Scimitar. 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 Scimitar? Oh, the sea is silent. Um, that's one thing I appreciated about Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. There's a pronunciation guide. Yes. That is like very long and detailed because there's a lot of... Very helpful. Harder words in this. Uh, yeah. So that Drist action figure. As like, and even like her little tiny figurine of wondrous power version of Guinevere. I love that detail. It's so cool. It's so cute. It's really cool. But they're, they're very, very high quality and they look great. So um, that is Hasbro Pulse exclusive and it's available for pre-order now, ready to ship in December. And we know there's lots of Drist fans out there. Uh, yep. The books by R.A. Salvatore, 32 of them uh, are also available in a humble bundle right now. Uh, mm-hmm. You can donate or uh, you know buy this humble bundle for as little as one dollar. I think some of the the combinations of those yeah. novels, uh, or of course you can go up much higher than that. And if you do, portions of those proceeds will go to support Extra Life, which is a fantastic charity that D and D has supported for for many many years. We've got lots of fun stuff coming uh, about that. But this is an easy way to uh, revisit some of R. A. Salvatore's, or as we like to call him, Bob. Bob's, Bob's books. Um, and if you're interested in getting the first trilogy, uh, the I believe it's called the Icewind Dale trilogy, or is it called the Crystal Shard? Is the first novel. Um, yeah. It's chock full of information about running uh, adventures in Icewind Dale. Of course, it's a hundred years in the past uh, from our current timeline, but a lot of the the tenets and characters and things that are happening uh, are you know echoed in Icewind Dale, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. So. Uh, you know, you get to contribute to a great cause and you get to do some background research as Dungeon Master by reading these early novels of Bob if you haven't read them already. But hey, time to reread. Always fun to yep. do. Yep. 32 books. 
That's a lot of bucks. We're, we're all about the screaming deals today. All about <laughs> screaming it. Screaming deals. All about it. Sell. Uh, excellent. Well, I, without further ado, without further selling, let us go and listen to the dulcet tones of Jeremy Crawford telling us all about D&D rules. Let's do it. Welcome to another segment of Sage Advice, where I talk to Jeremy Crawford. Hi, Jeremy. Hi. Good about, to see you. Good to see you, too. Uh, we talk about fun rules topics within Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition for you to uh, learn more about the aspects of how to use them in the game, but also some design philosophy about why the decisions were made as we are making them. And, Jeremy, you've been working a lot on Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, and there are a lot of fun mechanics within that beyond the subclasses and uh, puzzle guidance for Dungeon Masters uh, amongst the myriad of other things that are in that book. Uh, there are some really fun mechanics in there, and one of the ones we wanted to go over today in this segment was group patrons. And that one, uh, that mechanic came first to uh, the public's view in the Eberron book, right? Rising from the Last Absolutely. War? Yeah. Yeah. Originally, we explored this concept of a group patron for Eberron rising from the last war because we wanted to create really two things. First, we wanted to give you an ability specifically in Eberron to connect your group of characters to one of that world's amazing organizations, because a big part of Eberron is you have the dragon-marked houses and you have these various nations all embroiled in you know, different political machinations and plots. And we wanted to give you a concrete way of being connected to one of those groups or individuals uh, when you embarked on an Eberron campaign. But we also had a broader design goal, and that was to give you a simple way as a group of characters to pick something that would immediately unify you, not only as an adventuring group, but also uh, unify your story. Uh, Every group has had that moment in the character creation process where each individual has come up with their cool character, with their fascinating backstory, and then everyone has to pause and wonder, wait, how do these characters actually tie together? What brought this disparate group together? And usually D&D groups are wanting something a bit more meaty than we ran into each other in a tavern. Although that, of course, is a great old standby. Uh, Always a good fallback for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with we were all sitting around having drinks we started talking and realized, you know, you want treasure, I want treasure, let's go get treasure. <laughs> and that's sort, of, that's sort of a D&D classic. But many groups want a bit more narrative meat on, on those bones. And some groups are great at coming up with a narrative on their own for their group. But sometimes it can be a struggle. It could be you're playing with uh, people you don't play with normally, or maybe you're playing with your longstanding D&D group, but the group of characters you came up with are so disparate in their backstories that you might struggle to come up with why the heck are, are we working together? Right. Well, the group patron system is one way you can very simply answer the question of 
Why are we working together? Because as soon as you all decide, hey, we're employees of this university, or we all work for this particular duchess, your group gets pulled together. You suddenly have common purpose. You suddenly have a quest giver or a whole host of quest givers. You can have then missions that can shape the whole course of your campaign, depending on how deeply a dungeon master wants to engage with your patron as a part of the broader story. It suddenly unlocks this toolkit uh, for storytelling, for how you see your character developing, NPCs you might meet, you know, personal goals that the, the characters might develop in relation to their group patron. People responded positively enough to this concept in Eberron that we thought, what if we did this, but did it for all D&D worlds? Right. Take that very Eberron-specific approach that we had in the Eberron book and generalize it. Make it so that we would have a set of group patrons that, if you're playing in Greyhawk, the Forgotten Realms, Spelljammer, a world of your own creation, you could go to this set of group patrons and find something that would be appropriate for you. So with that goal in mind, we created the group patron chapter of Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. And we indeed created a set of, of patrons riffing on some of the work we did in the Eberron book that are truly setting agnostic. How does having, I mean, because group patrons have been something that people have used uh, in Dungeons and Dragons for, for many, many years, right? I mean, you could even say, you know, any type of situation in which you're getting missions from a, from a king or a wizard or, or any of those things could fall under, under the auspices of that name. Um, but what sets this apart? What mechanically do uh, players and dungeon masters do differently when they have, uh, when they interact with this system? One of the big things is first, we have formalized it uh, because often when people have done it in the past, it's been informal. Here, if you engage with the group patron system, you're asked to think very consciously, do we want to engage with this right from the get-go? Uh, then we also give you concrete perks that your group can acquire through your work with your group patron. And these perks can include hard cash. You know, mm -hmm. there's some of the group patrons uh, in, in uh, Tasha's Cauldron, you know, they're going to pay you for the work that you do. But there are even some of them that will give you things like supernatural gifts. So your, your group might actually gain new powers as a result of the work that you're doing for this patron. All of that, of course, a DM could improvise. But here we've done the work for you by saying, hey, if your group patron is an ancient being, for example, the ancient being is one of the, the uh, examples in Tasha's Cauldron, as a result of that work, you might eventually get supernatural abilities that have been bestowed upon you by this patron, whose motivations may or may not be entirely known to you uh, or might be suspect. I say that because one of the example ancient beings we give in Tasha's Cauldron is the Lich Azalin from uh, Ravenloft. Mm -hmm. uh, Azalin is a rival of Strahd's. And in the book, in the ancient being section, there is a, a painting of, of Azalin peering into a crystal ball at Castle Ravenloft. So if you have a, a patron like that, uh, 
who knows what strange errands they're going to send your group on. Now in Tasha's Cauldron, we also introduce another mechanical goodie for groups that engage with a group patron. And this is something that was not in the Eberron book. Oh, okay. That is, that is if your group has a group patron, because of the extra cohesiveness that that represents, whether you're all employees of a particular organization, like a, a criminal syndicate, you know, which is one of the options, or a military or a religious order, because of that extra cohesiveness among your characters, you all now have the ability to, each of you, once per day, grant advantage to one of your fellow party members uh, to any ability score, uh, rather ability check, attack roll, or saving throw that the other person makes, as long as uh, you can see or hear each other. And really what this is, it's the ability to kind of instantly take the help action once per day to help someone else in this tight-knit group, representing how much more closely you are all accustomed to work together because of the connections that the group patron represents. Uh, for instance, if you take uh, the the military group patron, uh, there is a good chance that your group might have served together, you know, on, on a battlefield uh, or on many battlefields. And as a result of that time served and the training that you've experienced together, it's more easy for you to help each other try to accomplish various things than a typical D&D group. That's another really cool. way of saying and another way of saying all of this is really it's just you each have the ability to give each other inspiration, uh, you know, because that's that's essentially what the inspiration mechanic is, which is, you know, giving a buddy uh, advantage on on one of these D20 roles. I love that. I mean, it's something that I I do at the table a lot is to, to try to encourage the uh, rule as written for inspiration, which says that you can bestow that inspiration on other characters. It's not just a dm to character pipeline it's supposed to be something that's spread around and used when necessary and this is just reinforcing that idea definitely and even go so far as not allowing you to give it to yourself with this group patron ability you can only give this advantage to other people I like that. Uh, uh, and so maybe you know you help them and eventually they'll use theirs uh, to help you uh, this will be, it will be interesting to see people use it in play because resources like this are always tricky in D&D &D and, and, and actually in many tabletop games because you'll always have those players who want to hold on to it for just the right moment and then you get to the end of the session and realize they never used it. So I'm, I'm hoping people will be bold and, and use it uh, to, to, you know, get get their companions out of trouble uh, as often as possible, hmm. knowing you're going to get it back when you complete your next long rest. I am firmly in that camp of playing computer RPGs who at the end of the game has like 500 potions and 600 <laughs> scrolls that I'm like, I'm saving it for the final ball. Oh, that was the ball. Oh, okay. I guess I didn't need to use them anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I hear you. I, for, 
for some reason, I'm pretty good about using consumables in, in the games I play, except for potions for some reason. I, too, will get to the end. And it's like, I don't know how my character is carrying these hundreds of potions, <laughs> but there they are. You're wearing a cloak of potions. <laughs> That's right. That's awesome. Uh, I also like this because it reminds me of, uh, I don't know what the feature was called, but there was a 3.5 feature that was similar to this that was all about your group working together cohesively. And you had, I mean, there were some persnickety rules of like you couldn't fire into melee and so some ways uh this benefit allowed you to do that essentially uh, i remember in 3.5 um but this is getting that idea that like you're a you're a, a trained group that is doing something together which has a lot of tropes in in fantasy and uh speculative fiction like you know i'm thinking of like agents of shield or like even x-men mm-hmm. or like all these like superhero groups that work together and they work together so well because they've trained on each other's abilities and weaknesses. And this is exactly the type of thing that you would expect a well-honed D&D party to do. Absolutely. And that, that was exactly the inspiration behind this. We had in mind, you know, like how are the X-Men, you know, when they fight together or, you know, the fellowship of the ring, you know, it's a well-oiled machine, which, all D&D groups achieve that at some point, you know, and, and when a group plays together long enough, you know, there's this beauty as, as people start understanding what each other's characters can do and you start setting each other up, you know, like, okay, I'm going to do this. And because I did this, you're going to now be even more effective. But with this group patron rule, it's going to make it even easier. It's kind of, you know, uh, greasing the wheels of that process of, of your group working truly as a team. We also uh, give guidance uh, in Tasha's Cauldron for being your own patron, because you might want to decide that you're running an organization. And there are risks, of course, involved in that because you are now taking on the responsibilities of running an organization. You also don't have the benefit of someone else paying you, uh, but that option is there uh, as well. Uh, I think people are going to mostly, though, gravitate toward the patrons themselves uh, because we have, I think, a really nice spread of different options. You know, I've mentioned the military force, the ancient being, re- religious order, uh, an academic institution. Uh, there's also the guild if you want to work for, you know, maybe a merchant empire or a particular guild, like a, a thieves guild, uh, you know, criminal organization. Uh, you can uh, work for uh, an aristocrat or a sovereign. Like if you want to your patron to be like a king or a queen, uh, that is also an option. And e- each one of those options can, can flavor a campaign in a radical way. I mean, if you imagine, imagine two groups, for instance, diving into Rhyme of the Frost Maiden, but one group is going in in service to a religious order, and the other group is going in as part of a military. Just that difference could change completely how their playthrough of those adventures feels, depending again on how much the DM decides to incorporate that group patron element into the campaign. It almost feels uh, like this should be introduced and talked about at like a session zero or before you really start play, right? Like at the character creation stage. 
Absolutely. And that is the intention. And in, I, I love that you mentioned session zero because we actually have a whole section in Tasha's Cauldron okay. on running a session zero. And we recommend in the book, when you have a session zero, consider uh, taking on a group patron for your group. Uh, session zero is one of those things that the tabletop RPG community has talked about for many, many years. And even D&D products over the decades have talked about it. But we realized none of our fifth edition rulebooks have really forefronted it as something uh, to consider for your campaign. And so we do that in Tasha's Cauldron. Now, I'm, I'm running a campaign right now that it's a, it's a, it's a, a homebrew setting. And I'm thinking about adapting this group patron idea for use within it because uh, it fits really well. Uh, but I sold that kind of idea to my players in the session zero Meaning like, oh, do you guys want someone to to be like the quest giver early on uh, so that you have some guidance and some some direction? Feel free to, you can, you know, not do what they ask you to do whenever you want. Um, but how, how would you use this feature and then allow players to abandon it if they wanted to? Uh, I, abandoning it, I think, is an exciting... Uh, option for every group. And I say exciting because saying no to your patron can generate as much adventure potentially as saying yes. Mm. Uh, because if you get on your patron's bad side or simply they stop being your patron, you might go from having a friendly quest giver to having a new rival or even a new enemy. And so even that turns into a powerful storytelling tool for the dungeon master. And you know the, the patron isn't going to take a group messing up or, or refusing their requests forever. And again, I think that that is a very uh, fun path potentially for a group to explore. Because like going back to that ancient being example I used earlier, you might be okay early on serving Azalin the Lich. You might not even realize you are serving that Lich. But maybe once you do figure it out and you figure out what that patron's goals are, you might decide to walk. You might decide we need to go find ourselves a new group patron or just be done with this patron business. And, and that is a part of the flexibility of this system. Would you uh, take away any of the features that they had earned through their patron? I mean, I guess a supernatural gift is something that, okay, you're, not, you're no longer bestowed with that blessing. But like, it's not like you can make people forget their training. <laughs> right, right. And, and, and so, yeah, the benefits in the book, they're clear about, you know, how long you retain them and that kind of thing. Oh, that's great. Uh, and, and, and also, you know, especially when it comes to cold, hard cash, uh, the patron can't take it back uh, unless, well, they might try. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the group might have something to say about that. Oh, man. Then it becomes not a heist adventure. It becomes a defend the heist adventure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That exactly. could be super fun. Uh, so um, yeah, how how would you say that you are already in the middle middle of a campaign, and you as a dungeon master really want to introduce uh, one of these group patrons uh, from Tasha's, or you want to retrofit something that's already been happening in your campaign to this? Uh, what advice would you give for for integrating into an ongoing story? So these actually work perfectly as a later addition. Because 
people constantly meet new NPCs, new organizations over the course of a campaign. Imagine a group, for instance, traveling to a nation they haven't been before. They meet the sovereign there and they are suddenly asked to do various things in the kingdom because of what the sovereign has heard they've accomplished in other parts of the world. At that moment, that sovereign could become that group's patron, and then that group gains access to you know, the different, different perks of having that, that NPC as their patron, and they have the potential to you know, work their way up in their patron's good graces. So this can be something that you add later in a campaign. And we also have guidance in each group patron on the types of roles that each character might play as part of that particular organization or in service to an individual like a king or a queen. What we do in each group patron is we have a table that lists a variety of the backgrounds in the player's handbook and then associates those backgrounds with different jobs you might have in that organization or in service to that individual. And so if whether you're making your character and and your group is selecting a patron or you are adopting a patron later in the campaign, you have a sort of a map in Tasha's Cauldron for how not only your group can interact with that patron, but how you as an individual might be working with that patron. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and I could totally see that being like, all right, we've finished this arc of, of a, you know, of getting this story resolved. We killed the dragon. That kingdom is fine. We're going to the next kingdom. And then that's when you introduce a group patron or, you know, maybe that's even the hook that brings people to a, uh, the, the party to a new area uh, is to work for this new, perhaps more powerful uh, patron out there to, to be able to do things. So that's a good tool to have in the Dungeon Master's toolbox to spice up an ongoing campaign. Absolutely. And, and you, you mentioning that is now making me imagine groups that are maybe constantly trying to trade up yeah. on their patrons. <laughs> we served a guild before, but now we can serve the queen herself. Right. We were, we were working for a wizard, but now we got a, a mystical being we can work for. Let's, let's do that. That seems yeah, to be yeah. good. Um, yeah. And I, I do love this feature because it does automatically make you think of, you know, how you would describe your campaign to someone. Like if you were, if you were to do your log line of like, Oh, we played in this campaign where we were working for, uh, you know, the, the, the king of some land, then that's an easily oh, identifiable, identifiable story hook that, that you could share with everybody. And absolutely. Yeah. I like that a lot. Um, I'm thinking about doing that with Icewind Dale when I start playing with my girls. I'm like, maybe they'll be, because I love, they're in school right now, maybe they will love working for a university or an educational uh, uh, thing to go catalog all of the, the flora and fauna and how it's happening uh, with what's happening in, in Icewind Dale. That could be really fun. Yeah, they, they also could have heard rumors in the university of something buried under the ice. And, you know, they... They go go to Icewind Dale on an archaeological expedition, uh, yeah. it, and it it is powerful how much a group patron, even married to an adventure like Rime of the Frost Maiden that has a full fledged story of its own, how powerfully the group patron can introduce a whole new layer of storytelling mm-hmm. and of really helping to answer 
not only the questions we brought up earlier in our talk about why is this group together, but also then the next question of why are we going on this adventure? Uh, because that's also a question sometimes groups struggle with is, okay, we figured out why we're together, but now what's the connection between us and the plot of this adventure? The group patron can help answer that question too. Yeah, in a really elegant way that feels like, all right, well, you're going to do a task, right? And I'm thinking of uh, that scene from Indiana Jones where the uh, government officials come in and basically give him his quest. Uh, you know, <laughs> essentially, he's working for a group patron in that situation. Yeah, and I I love that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, not only for that reason, because it, it's like he got his group patron, but then that also that scene has the style of exposition that many dungeon masters do. Yes. You know, like, and now we're also going to tell you about the Ark of the Covenant, and like, you can just imagine that whole scene being. The, the work of a DM. Who knew that, uh, well, I guess we did know that Spielberg was uh, a dungeon master from its uh, appear, uh, D&D's appearance in E.T., so there it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we figured it out here on Sage Advice. Uh, excellent. <laughs> well, I'm excited uh, for more players to interact with the group patron. As I said, a lot of people use this uh, and have been for, throughout, so having it formalized and being able to be introduced uh, to the D&D fandom is going to be really great. But I know that the first question that people will probably ask is, well, can I make new ones? Can, are, there, are there group patrons that aren't covered in this list? Uh, and, and what guidelines do you might give to someone who's going to create their own group patron? I think the group patrons in the book are a great template for, for DMs and players to come up with new patrons. Because you'll see when you go through them, that we have provided information in pretty consistent categories like types of perks, the sorts of roles you can have, the different types of missions you can go on, also coming up with who your contact is in the organization or whom, or the NPC who might be the go-between between uh, your, your group and a patron who's an individual. If you look at all of the parts that that build a group patron, I think a DM and a group can very easily then graft on new details or, you know, again, come up with an entirely new patron. Yeah. And I could see that being something that's done uh, and published on Dungeon Masters Guild. Like here's a, mm -hmm. a list of, you know, fleshed out patrons that you can adapt uh, beyond the the templates that are in Tasha's. I'm sure we're going to see those very soon. Yeah, because in many ways, uh, a group patron uh, is, it's sort of like a background for your group. And when it comes to homebrewing content or writing for the DMs Guild, I think it would be, in terms of like the, the game mechanical lift of doing this design work, uh, it, that the weight of that is pretty low. And so I, I encourage people, you know, give it a try. Uh, you know, if you've, if you've tried your hand at making backgrounds, uh, give designing uh, patrons a go as well. Yeah. And Dungeon Masters, you know, no need to publish them. You can just do that on your own and, and run it in your campaign. Absolutely. And I'm sure they will. That'd be really great. Cool. Any other kind of topics around group patrons that we wanted to make sure we got across here? Uh, let's see. One of the, one of the more 
amusing bits, potentially, I think, is that little contact bit that I mentioned in passing. Because when you pick your patron, you aren't just picking who that person or organization is. You're then also picking who do you talk to? Who actually gives you your missions? Mm. And so for each group patron, we have a table of options. A DM, of course, can create additional options. But some some of those contact possibilities can themselves spawn adventures because some of the, the contact possibilities on the tables are, are wacky, others are mysterious, a few are even scary. Uh, you know, because I mentioned, you know, some of these, some of these uh, patron options are supernatural and that means some of the contact options are supernatural. Like oh, you, yeah. like what, one of the options on one of the tables is you might get all of your missions in your dreams. Like that's how your, your patron contacts you, uh, which that alone will create a very different campaign experience than if your contact is someone in an office somewhere that you go meet and, you know, get, get quests on, on parchment. Uh, so, so that it's another example of how each choice that you make as a part of the group patron can, can generate adventure quests and, and alter the feel of the overall story. Are there, are there templated NPCs that you can use as these contacts, or are they more just like one-sentence descriptions? They're just a few sentences of description, uh, but it would be fairly easy to marry them to NPC stat blocks in the NPC uh, appendix of the Monster Manual. Or even sidekicks. And, yes, yeah, yeah. You could easily build them as sidekicks. Also using rules from Tasha's Cauldron. Yes, which we will talk about on a future segment of Sage Advice. Um, and uh, just one final thing I wanted to, to throw out there with your mentioning earlier about having the group be their own patron, um, it immediately sprang to mind the idea uh, combined with you know who the contact is, is if you're running um, multiple campaigns in, the, in a shared universe type thing, or if you, if you retire your group uh, at high level and start playing with low level characters, uh, you as a dungeon master can do that wonderfully fun thing which is use the uh, high-level characters from your player's past as contacts in an organization going forward. I love that idea. Yeah. Yes, DMs, listen to him. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> and as always, I'm inspired to like run like every single campaign uh, <laughs> that I could possibly have the time for <laughs> after talking to you. So thank you, Jeremy. Um, where can people get in touch with you and potentially ask you questions about uh, Dungeons and Dragons, but group patrons and what's in Tasha's? Uh, best place to reach me is on Twitter, where I am Jeremy E. Crawford. I don't, I don't get onto Twitter as much as I used to, uh, but I love seeing people's questions and comments when I do go there, because uh, even if I don't have time to answer them, uh, they, they go into my, my bank and you know, I ponder you know, what people are interested in, you know, what's puzzling people, and that, that feeds into the work that then the team does. Yeah, and potentially uh, has topics arise that we might want to talk about here on Dragon Talk. So uh, definitely keep shooting in uh, those questions. We really appreciate it. Excellent. Well, thanks. As always, Jeremy, great to talk to you. And we'll be back with some more fun D&D segments next week. Great. Bye, everyone. Oh, I missed Jeremy. He has such a great way of speaking. 
one of my secrets of uh, doing those sage advice things is I just listen. I just let him talk. Yeah. And then I'll be yeah. like, oh, what about this thing? And then he'll talk again for, for a long time. And I feel like I know so much more. Um, and it's, it's always a joy. And I'm glad I get to share it with y'all. And we, f- and we feel calm. And we feel calm. He's a very yes. calming voice. He really is. Yeah. Um, also, a very nice, interesting voice to talk to is Mr. Chris Perkins. I agree. Let us now turn to him to find out more about Icewind Dale and its rhyme of the Frost Maiden. Welcome, Chris Perkins, to Dragon Talk. Hi, Chris. Hi there. Welcome back. We are excited to talk to you about Icewind Dale. Anything. Well, anything Anything. in general, but also (laughs) Frost Maidens and how we can bake them. What? (laughs) This got a whole lot more interesting. (laughs) It's the reality television interview you've always wanted I'm to do, Shelley. Super excited. <laughs> so we Bachelor know you're totally in Icewind Dale. Busy working on other things at this point, but let's go back in time to when you were working ooh, on ooh, Icewind Dale ooh. Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. Two How years long ago. ago in, was that two years ago? About two years ago. It was a more innocent time. It, yeah. <laughs> but it's um it's interesting what this adventure is about and how it came out. During an interesting time. Um, Are you familiar with this little old British cartoon, Simon, Simon in the Land of Chalk Drawings? No. I always think of you, or I always think of him when I think of this product in you, because this was like way back when I was a kid, and I used to watch Captain Kangaroo, and he was like this little segment that they had on the show, and he would draw things on the chalkboard, and they would come true. And so you're basically... Yeah. Simon. But Not with too words. far off the mark. Yeah. <laughs> See, this started two years ago. You were working on this. Yes. Yes. And, uh, but we, let's see, we probably started even earlier, just like in terms of con- concepting and thinking about it and mm-hmm. trying to figure out what we wanted to do and stuff like that. Yeah. And yeah. traveling to Icewind Dale is interesting because it's very different from. Baldur's Gate and Avernus, which was different from, you know, uh, yeah, that's one of the keys is we're you know not just to to maintain our own interest in a product, but also we want to make sure that it's very different from anything we've done before. Yeah, it's it's really bringing something new to the game. Yeah, and it's... Icewind Dale does that because not only is it a frozen wasteland and terrifying in in its own way, but uh, there are things mechanically that we can do in that kind of environment that's interesting when you're kind of closed off and dealing with the elements, blizzards and avalanches and all that kind of stuff. So it creates a very different table experience, I think. Yeah. I, last year we were in hell, which is yes. very hot and sweaty. And now yeah. we're freezing in ice and hell, basically. Yeah. Yes. Still, yeah. the hell, the hell theme still. And the horror comes from that theme of isolation and not knowing what's around the corner. Yeah, and not having anybody who can just sort of swoop in and help you either. It's not like you can just call the authorities or the city watch in Waterdeep. There's you're kind of out there on your own, very exposed. I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. Well, Icewind Dale has a lot of history um, in D and D lore. Uh, you know, probably starting with uh, R. A. Salvatore's 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 <laughs> uh, Crystal Shard book. Uh, is was that was that a inspiration or at least a jumping off point? Oh for you? yeah, absolutely. Um, 
So in, in that book, the heroes of the story, uh, this group of adventurers, have to save 10 towns from a, a terrible threat, really. Uh, the crystal shard is this evil artifact that this falls into this wizard's hands. And um, with it, you know, you can bring demons into the world and all kinds of you know, evil shenanigans. But it's really up to this group to save uh, what passes for civilization in 10 towns from being wiped out. And so when we did this story, Rhyme of the Frostmaiden, we wanted to preserve that idea. Only now, you're the heroes. It's not the novel's heroes. It's a new group of heroes. A hundred years later, Ten Towns needs to be saved again. Um, Dritz and his companions aren't up here right now. Who's going to do it? You! But there's okay. Some, yeah. <laughs> the, the through line there that I really like is that that was a uh, ragtag group of people who came from other places uh, the companions I'm talking about, and then they yeah. all banded together, not necessarily by choice, but by necessity. And I think you kind of brought that to life uh, in the opening chapters of, of this book, right? Yeah, the same idea holds true. The characters, like most people who live in Icewind Dale, sort of come from all over the place and kind of land here for a variety of reasons, some to escape a harsh environment, just like Dritz did when he came up from Menzo Baranzan. Others, because they're just you know, they want to get away from it all or they want to test their mettle against, you know, the harshest land that they can find. Um, or they're wanted how, criminals. Or they're wanted criminals or pirates or, you know, whatever. There's all kinds of reasons. They just and need when a you're up alone here, time. When you're up here, um, you know, um, in the cold and there aren't many friendly creatures, the friends you do find, you have to hold close. Yeah, when you find that trust you know, you want to be like, yes, yeah. you are, you are yeah. in the circle of trust. Yes. Otherwise you become the, you know, the, the, the wacky um, hermit who lives in the, the frozen woods and eats bark. It's, it is a, a slippery slope to get there. No pun intended. But <laughs> that's too bad. I kind of wish you were... intended it. No, that was good. You can, that would have been good. Um, Cover copy. I do. I do appreciate though. An Icewind Dale adventure is a dish best served cold. That has you written all over it. Did you write that? I did, and I did that for the story bible. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people don't know it, but before we do a big campaign adventure like this, the first thing that we actually work on is a is a product called a story bible, and that's an internal document, and a document that serves our partners who might be working on material that uh, coincides with the release, like WizKids Shardland Dragon Mini, for instance. Um, so we, we pour some concept art and a few words into this story Bible, which is about 16 to 24 pages. And then we use that as a guide for everybody else who comes into the project after that point. So freelance writers can use it, artists can use it, our partners can use it. And so in coming up with the story guide, there's always a title page that has the code name of the project on it and then a tagline. And the code name for Icewind Dale, many people don't know this, was Avalanche. And the tagline, of course, was Adventure is a Dish Best Served Cold. And I just whipped that off. Um, and there it is. For one of my favorite, uh, you know, both of those the story guides are incredibly valuable for uh, many reasons, but this one in particular, I, I had a printed out copy of and had near my desk. 
uh, for many months. And it was, uh, it, it, it works really well as a guidepost for everyone who's working yeah. on D&D in any capacity just to know what, what we're going towards. Exactly. And it talks about things like what are the themes of the story? Who are the major antagonists? What are the key conflicts? What is Ten Towns? Who are these ragged nomads who are wandering around in the tundra? Um, just kind of hitting the high beats. Yeah. Well, and it's full I, of concept art, too, which I always... Oh, tons yeah, of concept that, art. Yeah, it's mostly cool. art, yeah. And the I, art, of course, is very important because it, it paints a picture of the mood and the atmosphere, and yeah. it inspires the artists who are actually doing the artwork in the printed books. So I, I like the story Bible because it gives me a glimpse into your inner workings. <laughs> and I sometimes like think, like, what? How did how do you come up with this stuff? And I know like there's a, a lot of it is D and D lore, a lot of it's canon, but it, sometimes it kind of feels like you've just got like the entire D and D sandbox is yours to just be like, I'm gonna drop this one in here. I'm gonna put to this an one extent, here. Like, where, like, oh, like I like to I like to play within a sandbox that's sort of got established boundaries. And yeah. I it's not like I I decided that we were going to Icewind Dale. That was actually decided for me. Um, is it, that typical though uh or? it it was uh, for a number of years a little less so now okay. but it, it's very typical because often we like to plug our stories into something that's either happening in the zeitgeist or right. something that we've got planned on another front like we've we've uh, wizards has already announced that dark alliance is in development that's a icewind dale video game right we wanted this product to sort of be a way to reintroduce Icewind Dale to fans before that other game came out. Came out, and so that was kind of my marching orders. It's like Chris, it has to be an Icewind Dale, and we wanted to sort of foreshadow, at least mood-wise or atmospherically, what will what we're thinking about doing with Dark Alliance. And then I went, okay, okay, that's enough. I, I got my work. sandbox. I can work <laughs> I in that space, toys. and off I go. Yeah. I, I always equate that to like a prompt you might get in like a writing contest or something like that where it's, yeah. you know, if you have in infinite possibilities, sometimes that can stifle creativity. But all you need is that like, here's one idea and your mind starts going, jumping off and, yeah. um, it, you know, it almost is like a collaborative, you know, RPG session. Exactly. But another key thing, going back to the story guide just for a second, that that, pro that, that quasi product serves is... It's a test. Um, once the story guide is done and we send it out to people on staff and we send it out to partners, if the reaction is, <sighs> <laughs> then we probably know then that we're kind of doomed. You know, we should maybe think about doing something else. But if people see that story guide and they get excited and they're like, yeah, Icewind Dale, let's go there. Let's die. Woo, fun, fun. <laughs> you know, get the toboggans. Woo, <laughs> uh, then, then you know... Uh, that you can spend the next year and a half working on this thing and um, the interest won't die out. Yeah. And I, and I know lots of people who got that story guide who are excited about the themes of isolation, desolation, despair, <laughs> uh, you know. People, but also happiness. Happiness. There's a little bit of fun because you can't have despair and horror and not have something to accent it. For sure. Um, yeah. So yeah, what were some of the elements? Uh, oh, first let's 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 just live in the isolation and desolation for a while because that <laughs> you know that is 
Because uh, we are. And over, <laughs> yeah, right, because we're all feeling that. Um, one thing that, one image that you always talked about when you talked about this uh, story, which we codenamed Avalanche uh, at the time, was this idea of not, everybody's bundled up and has so many, um, you know, furs and hoods over their faces that you can see a figure on the horizon and you don't know what it is because it is basically masked to you. Um, yeah. And you don't know if it's friend or foe. And that idea was really compelling to me. And, you know, you mentioned how that was, that was true where you grew up uh, in, in Canada. True oh. enough. Yes. Yeah, I was, when I was a kid, one of the favorite pastimes, of course, was to get our toboggans and go up to the big hill and then bomb down the hill. And it was like in the middle of a forest. So not only did you have to go down the hill, but you had to navigate trees and things to avoid hitting them. Nice. And then at the very bottom, there was a creek. And if you didn't go over the creek, like evil Knievel, you went into the creek and might not have come back out. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so, but I remember I had this image in my head once of walking to the hill by myself and seeing people on the hill I hadn't seen before, and I couldn't recognize who they were because they were all in parkas. And that kind of scared me for some reason. Um, you yeah. know, walking up to this, these parka-clad figures and not knowing who they were, because I didn't know if they were my friends, I didn't know if they were the kids from this, the other street, or, you know, what have you. Or Reagan nomads. Or Reagan nomads, exactly. Or Yeti tykes in, you know, oh. parkas. Or three, three kobolds in a coat. Three kobolds in a coat. Um, <laughs> so for some reason, I've, I've always been uh, nervous about that. And there is something about not knowing what's underneath all those furs. Uh, that sort of uh, gets you somewhere deep down inside of you and makes you just give you a bit of a shiver or a shudder. That's really interesting. Do you an, do you incorporate a lot of like moments like that from your past, it, like that just have stuck with you? We all have those moments, but do you incorporate a lot of them into the the stories that you tell? Yeah, yeah, I, I try to. Very interesting. And, and it's, uh, you know, I I don't make it an obvious thing, and it might not even occur to me why I'm doing it, and then I think about it, and it's like, oh, that's why I did that because that I was thinking about this thing, you know, that happened to me when I was 14 or whatever. Will we ever see any stories about um, a poor cardboard robot that <laughs> fell over and cannot write himself? <laughs> it needs a kind party of adventurers to pull him up. Was that ever on? <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe one day. Shelley's referring to, uh, for those who don't know, a story I told her about a Halloween costume uh, that I had to wear one year, and it was a, basically a robot. And it was made out of stacked boxes covered in tinfoil. And my mother did a great job. The problem is the way the, the bottom box fit, it covered my knees. So <laughs> when I fell over, I was unable to get back up, and no one would help me. It's just like... <laughs> It's so heartbreaking. It's oh. just, but I can't. <laughs> Those parking clad kids that. from the next street over just wouldn't yes. help you. If yeah. I were writing D&D Adventures, that would be in my story because it haunts me. Like, that's one that I can't, <laughs> I can't shake, that story. You would see, like, these poor little robot things yeah. that that's your job as an adventurer. Mm -hmm. Fix them. Write maybe, them, please. Maybe that's why you like Modron so much, Chris. 
it, you know, it could be. I do have a great deal of sympathy for Modrons, and I often That's think about how, how difficult their life must be because of the way they're built. Yes. Yeah. And it's interesting, like, hearing you talk about the, the people clad in parkas and not, you know, knowing if, are they friend or foe, because, I mean, like, you know, now we see mostly see people with masks on. And yes. I sometimes have, like, that same feeling, like, are you are you smiling? Like. I can't tell. Like, yeah, like, exactly. boy, I am like really reliant on like people's yeah. facial expressions to like, like under to like communicate. Yeah. And I, I mean, find like me too. Like I, I get a little resting bitch face now and again. Like when I'm zoning off, that I'm trying to make a very conscious effort to say hello like, and wave. <laughs> like, there has to be a way for you to know yeah. I'm you a friendly person. Get the expressions to your eyes. Yeah, I'm always yes. like smile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But then if you try too hard, it looks like you want to eat the other person. And that's yeah, again, <laughs> a slippery slope. Yeah. yeah. And part of it too, part of that whole idea was inspired when I started to think about Icewind Dale and my love for the, the John Carpenter film, The Thing, I, I would remember the Drew Struzan movie poster for The Thing, which of course has this tall figure backlit in a parka with light coming out of its face. So you can't see what it is. It's a very iconic image and that reinforces the theme even further it's like okay it looks like a man kinda but why is the light streaming out of its face right. that's not normal <laughs> yeah. like oh yeah gives me the creeps and it's a I cold have, light i have a fear of like looking out a window at nighttime because like if i'm illuminated if i know people can uh, see yeah. me and then like you hear something and it's like i don't want to look i'm so scared to look out a dark window yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, sometimes when your mind plays tricks on you and you see a shape that looks like a human, but it's not, yeah. it's just something else that in that moment, the, at the angle you saw it kind of bore a human-like resemblance. It might've been a tree. It might've been a fire hydrant. It might've been just, uh, you know, some, some object that kind of picked up the light in a weird way. Like some people see faces in things that aren't really there, you know, stuff like that. I've been having the, um, uh, uh, I have an umbrella in my deck uh, that in the wind the last few days has been blowing a lot, uh, even though it's closed. And out of the corner of my eye, I'll see movement of a, what looks like a you know fabric. And oh. three times over the last two days, I've been like, oh, is there someone in our back? Oh, no, it's yeah. just the oh umbrella. Oh, my God. <laughs> Simple things like that. Yeah, yeah. that's all it takes. Um, so so those are some things that people can start to incorporate when they're running uh, – you know, Icewind Dale, some of these fears that all of us innately yeah. have uh, of things that are, you know, human-like yeah. or, or monster-like. Um, yeah. You really do tap into all of those things and themes, uh, you know, throughout this story. I do indeed. So, it, and when we talk about this and, like, we talk about the, like, horror a lot, is this particular adventure... Like, is it, is the horror something that the dungeon master can dial up or down? Or is this like, yeah. you're, you go into this and know that there's going to be some real s- scary stuff happening. I mean, yeah, the, the, there's a through line of horror, like little touchstones throughout the adventure that sort of are nods and winks to horror movies and certainly have that feel that we just talked about. But then there's also a lot of stuff in this adventure, because it is a big adventure that isn't like that. And it's mainly meant to, just kind of show all the facets of Icewind Dale. Like there's more to Icewind Dale than just shocks and chills. There are little creatures there called Chewingas that are nature spirits and they're benign. You know, they exist in this environment and they can, they have no problems. This little guy 
on the back cover. There's yeah. a little chewinga right there. Um, Wait, yeah. In a in a parka. Exactly. And again, They're, from a they sort of they sort they sort of show a Icewind Dale in a slightly different light. Like here's its here's one of the reasons why people find this place magical and interesting to live in because they might glimpse one of these small creatures um, popping around or riding on the back of an Arctic fox or, you know, something like that. These little moments help dispel the fear and kind of ground the setting and, sh- and uh, help bring Icewind Dale uh, into a place where it does feel like a real ecosystem, um, that there are, there's more to it than just the, the dark horror. Yeah. And you, I mean, we talked about that a lot with uh, Curse of Strahd, which we'll be talking about again when we talk about uh, Curse of Strahd revamped uh, in a few weeks. But, you know, the, to have a game or a campaign that has nonstop jump scares and, you know, death and destruction, um, you know, it can get so samey and the horror doesn't even really register anymore because it's all like that. Exactly. Uh, and yeah. so you need to have these moments of brevity uh, or at least um, levity. Brevity. Yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> or brevity. Yeah. Brief yeah. humor, you know, levity, <laughs> levity. Uh, <laughs> so that, so that guess, it, yeah. it brings the horror to full relief. Exactly, exactly. And I think it's also worth painting Icewind Dale as, in a way, a very beautiful place. Uh, there are things that you see in the adventure, like these beautifully sculpted ice gardens that the Frost Maiden has made, mm. or these um, migrating herds of reindeer, some of whom have luminous, um, fl- like fluorescent horns. Uh, and it's quite, there, there's beautiful imagery to be seen. And um, then even the curse itself, the, uh, the eternal winter, is beautiful with the aurora. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, the aurora is meant to be uh, like one of the most stunning visual sights you could possibly ever see. And growing up in Canada, I used to see them quite a bit. Nice. And uh, I miss them. And so this story is a way for me to just sort of dive back into that memory too and, and, uh, and show that, yeah, in, in the terror, everything happening, there is a beauty to be seen. That's important for everyone to think about right now in the world. Yes, good life lesson. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's that's part of it. Uh, If you're in a world and everything seems to be on fire, you you look for reasons or or solace in something, and uh, beauty is one of those things. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the Frost Maiden. Uh, She's on the cover of, of both uh, covers, the alternate cover uh, by Hydra 74, as well as the painting by Tyler Jacobson in the standard cover. Um, very iconic. I, I remember showing this to my daughters, uh, especially my oldest daughter who <laughs> loves owls. And so being mm. able to see this, so this barn I. owl creature uh, was really just immediately got interest uh, and things like that. And I think it's true for a lot of people who uh, were introduced to this during you know, D&D Live in June. Where did that... You know, where did this antagonist come from and, and this specific visualization come from? So, uh, Aurel, the Frost Maiden, has been around in the game, in Forgotten Realms forever. Ed Greenwood created her as part of uh, the pantheon of deities of the realms. And she embodies winter's indifference and cruelty, um, among other things. Um, but to visualize her for this product, what we wanted to get away from was just a, you know, uh, we didn't. We didn't want 
her kind of most prominent or visual form to just be a human. Um, we wanted her to be something bizarre and like you've never seen this before. Uh, just so when people, if nothing else, saw the cover, they'd be like, what is that? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it heightens the mystery. And we, all, we sort of know that um, gods in D&D, there she is, gods in D&D can look like anything. Um, there she is. And uh, so if they can look like anything, well, then they can look like a owl, goat, wolf monster. Um, <laughs> you know? Why not? But there's something almost serene about the face of an owl. Yes. And so you're conflicted. On the one hand, they're clearly monstrous. On the other hand, there is a, there's a strange kind of alien beauty and a penetrating stillness uh, to the character that I really kind of liked. This design was born out of a piece of concept art that Sean Wood um, nice. commissioned, uh, one of our art directors. If, if we had looked at the concept art and said, oh, that's stupid, you know, we would have gone with something else. But on the strength of the concept art really kind of sold us on what she is. And it's like, okay, she wears this shroud of snow over her back, uh, which she can throw off and turn into wings. So she's always sort of metamorphosing into different things. But we wanted to create a couple or three iconic looks for her that were really distinctive and you could instantly tell them apart, yet they're all the same creature. It really works. Uh, it's, 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 almost an uh, uncanny valley type of situation where the face looks human-like but alien at the same time. Uh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, the nature kind of feel of it, you know, of it being a, a, a recognizable snowy owl or uh, barn owl face is just, you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. works yeah. on, on a multiple levels. I love the talons too. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. She's, she's scary. Um, you would not love them if you were this guy in the corner. No. You know who that guy in the corner is? Do you recognize him? He looks like Richard. Yes, that is Richard. Is that Witters. really? <laughs> is that Richard Witters? <laughs> oh, yeah. Richard Witters, up. our senior our art director, director <laughs> rendered by Tyler Jacobson. Good job, oh, that's Tyler. Amazing. Yeah, frozen. In I the feel snow. so bad for him. Like that, this is a very pained, terrifying expression. Yes. Like it. it again, no pun intended. It gives me chills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Tyler did a great job, and and the in wolves coming showing, in the back for showing Richard's best side. His oh, best sure. I mean, I mean, th- this is an expression that we're all very familiar with. Seeing Richard at work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those who don't Richard. know, uh, Richard Winters is another art director uh, who uh, works on D and D and has for, for for many years. Yeah, that is but that, so that was funny. a fun little Easter egg. We didn't ask Tyler to do that; he did that all on his own. Oh, I love it. Because <laughs> he and Richard are such good friends. Yeah. What What can not. you tell us about Old Bitey? <laughs> oh, the, bitey. The fish that's on the uh, inside on the cover? On the title page. Yeah, yeah, so knucklehead trout are kind of a big thing in Icewind Dale. In fact, without knucklehead oh, yes. trout, Icewind, uh, civilization in Icewind Dale could not exist. Um, fishing is the primary industry of 10 towns, and knucklehead trout is what most people subsist on. And so there are three lakes that are full of knucklehead trout, but they are big fish. They're, they weigh between 45 and 75 pounds each. Oh, my God. So they can pull you into the water pretty easily if you're not careful. So Old Bitey is one of the most tena- was one of the most tenacious and um, hard-to-catch knucklehead trouts and had the scars to prove it until one day, finally, 
he was caught and mounted on a plaque in, in one of the taverns. But then some wizard who visited Icewindale decided to play a prank and beguiled the fish with a spell or sort of enchanted the fish with a spell so that it twitches whenever you get too close to it, like Stop it's it. alive. And occasionally, if you're lucky, the fish will burst out into song. And when it does, it sings a poem. And the and poem then, is in the book. Are you serious? Can you sing yeah. it for us? Can I sing it for you? <laughs> There's a place I like to go. Farther up the river's flow. Where it is, I do not know. Must be under all that snow. Oh, my God. Oh my God. Did you write that, too? I did. Okay. So... We so need good. old bitey. We need this. I mean, I've I've seen these these gag gifts at like Walgreens with uh, <laughs> the the bass that would like you know flap its tail and you yeah. walked by. But we, why do we not have old bitey? Why do we not have this? I don't Somebody know. please make know. us old. Bitey. But there would not be old bitey without April Prime, one of our art concept artists, because we tasked April with basically doing concept art for knucklehead trout, both male and female varieties, because they're slightly different size. And then she just threw Old Bitey um, into the, the mix. And as soon as we saw that little bit of that, the doodle down in the corner of her concept art page, we said, okay, that's in the adventure. Old Bitey is now a thing in Icewind Dale. That's so great. I yeah. love that. Uh, April it's... Prime also did the, uh, one of my favorite images in the book, which was the Chewingas uh, gathering for a meal. Yes. Yeah. One of the, one of the, one of the quests, you meet some chewingas and they're having a little impromptu meal out on the snow. Trying to to pretend to be human. Yeah. What are, really? What are they, what do they eat? Do I want to know? They don't really. Uh, They just make believe because uh, some chewingas who live out in the, the, the wilds of Icewind Dale, they're kind of, um, you know, they might be, uh, they, they tend to just be these white kind of, blend in with the snow, nature spirits. But the ones who've lived close to 10 towns sometimes try to emulate the people of 10 towns by making little garments for themselves, like little parkas oh my that God, almost look stop. like they're almost look like little pine cones running around. And then uh, they, they will do things like emulate behaviors of people that they watch. Like if they see some people eating by a fire, they will pick that up and then try to emulate that. Oh, they're very cute. cute. They're cute. wonderfully cute. And they were uh, Chewingas we uh, first met in the 5th edition era uh, in Tomb of Annihilation in Chult. Correct, right? yes. And uh, as a point of fact, they weren't originally slated to appear in Icewind Dale. It was during a conversation I was having with Todd Kenrick where he brought Chewingas up and wondered if they were going to have a return. And I was working on Icewind Dale at the time and I'm like, mm. yes, yes, they will. It furthers then- that theme of... Uh, you know, uh, immigrants, right? Like that. The, the yes. Icewind Dale is a melting pot of so many different places, including including Chult. Isn't one of the ten towns yes. actually founded from from yeah. Chulton? Ex- yeah, there there were Chulton settlers who who sort of helped build one of the towns in the town of Goodmead, I believe. And then, uh, so when they came, they probably had some Chewingas on their ships and in their caravans or whatnot. They may not have known it because Chewingas can turn invisible and hide in things like flowers and rocks and stuff like that, but the Chewingas would have no trouble as elemental, as mutable elemental spirits adapting to the cold climate. I love all that. Yeah. Um, and people will, you know, get introduced, or, I mean, players will get introduced to many of the, the settlements in 10 towns uh, oh, yeah. and uh, the people within. Um, 
I love the I love the quest structure in this in the first couple of chapters. That was um, based on positive reaction to the D and D Essentials kit. Mm. A lot of people loved the quest structures there because D and D Essentials kit is just a loose collection of quests with kind of a narrative through line that you can either pay attention to or ignore. Uh, the beginning chapters of Ice on Dale were formatted similarly, where here are a bunch of quests. The characters might only do a few of them, but that's fine because then, you know, the adventure has great replay value and, uh, um, and you've got lots of choice and they've got lots of choice. Um, one of the key things we wanted to do in the early chapters of the adventure was really let the players drive where they wanted to go and what they wanted to do. You know, if, if, if they come to Bryn Shander and they get the Bryn Shander quest and they say, mm, no, we don't want to do that. We're going to leave and go to Targos and see what's there. They can do that. That's D&D. That's D&D. And when the time comes for them to go off into Icewind Dale proper, there are quests there as well. The adventurer tries not to assume, you know, that the players are, are on, a ra- on a railroad. Hmm. Here's here's a question. This is oh, Shelley. I feel like you wanted to ask me. I really want to know what this visual is. The, the visual? Yeah. The what, what creatures are these? Those are chewingas. These are chewingas. Yes. Oh, they look different without their carcass on. Their garments. Yeah, I know. <laughs> okay, they're very beautiful. Aren't they though? Yeah. 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 This is what they kind of look like with their parka. So cute. Yeah, they they are pineconish. <laughs> yeah. Um, what I was going to ask, though, is as, as, as a dungeon master, I play with a lot of players who uh, have jumped into convention play or um, things that by necessity are a little bit more railroaded. Uh, and so mm-hmm. when they're sometimes presented with, hey, what do you want to do? They almost always want me to tell them what to do in some way yeah. or fashion. Um, so how would you introduce something like this that has a lot of choice involved? You know, what would you... What, what would you, advice would you give for a, a party like that? So if, if they're looking for a more directed approach, the DM, of course, has the luxury to just use certain pieces. Like if the, if the DM, like for instance, if I were DMing this adventure and I didn't know it as well as I did and I wasn't able to internalize a lot of it, what I would do is I would just pick a piece of it. Like I'd say, okay, I'm going to pick the, the section in chapter three on Karkaloke the goblin stronghold in the mountains. And I'm going to use the, the rumor to, in the, from the rumors table or the quest tied to Karkaloke. And I'm just going to run that as a standalone adventure for like fourth level characters or whatever. Um, that's part of the utility of this product is you don't have to use it all at mm. once. And so, and it says that upfront, like if you're just running a smaller experience or a more linear experience, for like a group of new players who don't even know what choices they can make, um, then you can just hone in on one of the adventure locations and then make that the star of the night or the, the single, the, the only place that the characters can go, you know? Yeah. Um, I like that you say that up front in the text a lot more with sidebars mm-hmm. and whatnot about how to run uh, this adventure, including uh, there's the, the Duergar Fortress, where you're like, you can use this with the quests involved, or you could just use it as a map if you want, because yeah. it's a cool map for a, for a dwarf fortress. Yeah, and I think as we, as we continue to hone how we do adventures forward, we'll see more of that kind of gentle guidance or hand-holding, particularly up front, um, 
because we can't assume anymore that our DMs uh, just have that information internally in their heads because uh, our game is growing so quickly. Yeah. And one of my favorite sidebars uh, that I've seen so far has been around running horror and how to make sure with your players that they are aware of, of themes or content that they might find objectionable and to have pretty candid conversations about that. And I thought that was really, yeah. really great to include. Yeah. And uh, we'll be, we'll, we'll see that, we'll see more of that kind of thing too in uh, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Oh, okay. Where we're, we're, because there's a big section there on helping to guide um, groups so that they have the be- so that everybody at the table has a great experience. And nobody feels like they're being made uncomfortable by, you know, what's happening in the game. Uh, but yeah, and I mean, you could write an entire product just on that very topic. So what we have in the adventure is is very light. But I think to your point, it's it's nice to see, and it is it's a necessary add. Yeah, and it, and it follows along that these adventure products that we've been creating are not you know, the 16-page adventure booklets that we used to see in the TSR era where it's just the content and that's it. These are whole cloth, you know, 256-page books or even bigger that that could be used in any variety of ways, whether just as a, mm-hmm. as a gazetteer of Icewind Dale, if you want to just use this and write your own story or yeah. be pu- pulled apart with different adventures or have these, these tools and these guidances uh, for Dungeon Masters that they might not have gotten uh, in, in other products. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think the other thing that we try to do in in this product and what we'll continue to do in adventures going forward is just make sure that the DM understands that even though these are words on the page, they are not immutable, that the DM has the power to change anything, to change any encounter, to modify any encounter, to throw stuff out, insert stuff that's new. Um, this is really a like a launch pad for your imagination. After that point, what you do to the adventure, what you do to Icewind Dale, you know, don't worry. It doesn't have to be canonical. It doesn't have to be any of that. Make it your own, you know. Yeah. That's the game. That's the yeah. to a team. That's, the, that's exactly. Have you ever played in an adventure that you wrote, like, just for fun, either as the DM or the player? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I played in Curse of Strahd. Is it as a player? Yeah. Yeah, Are for you- instance. Is it, is that fun for you? Like what, what is it um, like to, or is it nerve wracking? Like, it's not nerve wracking for me. It's, if anything, it's probably more nerve wracking for the DM because they know that I know yeah. a lot of information about the adventure. And so they either have to change things to surprise me or they have to trust that I'm not going to be a meta jerk and, you know, ruin the experience for everybody else who doesn't know anything about it. Can you imagine me, if you were like, oh, by the way, in this room, uh, there's a vampire spawn. And I could be that Don't glass. open the door. I, I could be that jerk, but I don't want to be that jerk. Um, <laughs> so, but I, I have fun because um, even though I may have been involved with it or written part of it or all of it, the, I'm always enchanted by <laughs> the choices that everyone at the table makes that makes it just a completely new experience. Um, it, it, none of my experiences running something that I've written on or worked on have been a faithful, you know, version of the adventure on, because the DM always changes something or bad roles will always cause something unexpected to happen. So I'm, 
I'm still as surprised as I would be if I had not, had nothing to do with it. Well, how do you play if you like and not be not not a jerk, but play like meta meta Chris that like how do how do you like shut off that part of like I know if I open this door, what's going to happen or I go in this room, what's in here? Uh, usually what I do is I let other characters make choices that advance the party through the story. And then I merely uh, react in the way my character would react then. So I am not looking for the secret door that I know is in the room. Okay. I'm letting the rest of the party do that. Hmm. And then if they find the secret door, I will, I will go through it with them. And if they don't, I will... Follow them wherever yeah, else so they you go. You guys are so dumb, man. And then throw that. your dice out. <laughs> <laughs> we gave you every clue. God, it was like right there. Okay, guys, we're approaching, one, we're approaching one of the rooms where the adventure says Strahd might be. So get your crosses and holy symbols out. <laughs> right, it's, it, and, and stakes and holy water. I, I tend to that. blink a lot when I sense a secret door, guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my God. I mean, <laughs> if you could come up with a code to do that secretly to the players so the DM wouldn't know, oh, that's even worse. Yeah. Why do you keep rubbing the side of your nose, Chris? What's going on, man? <laughs> that's, yeah. uh, that's the snow. It's, it's, yeah. You know what the street value of Icewind Dale is? Sometimes, <laughs> I'll just play, sometimes I'll just play a really dumb character, and that sort of absolves me, too. Yeah. Those are always so fun. I love playing they, they characters that are just like, blah, blah, blah. I'm just going to do yeah. what you want me to yeah. do. I either play a character who's too smart or very dumb. There's not much middle ground for me. <laughs> play to extremes. I like that. So, well, uh, yeah, go ahead. Did you have a question? Shall no. We? I, well, I was kind of thinking about, well, we talked to uh, two um, contributors that worked on the book with you last yeah, week. Yeah, Celeste um, and Ashley, Ashley Warren and, yeah, and Celeste Conowitz. And um, they were talking about the great experience they had in um, putting this project together. The, but, that team, by the way, um, the sort of the first writing team that we put together, they were very conspiratorial. They got off on their own like message boards and were what, having yeah. secret conversations on the side and plotting about what to put it, what to seed in their various parts of the adventure, stuff like that. It was yeah. Great. So now all of the the writing teams don't always have that much interaction with each other? It really depends. That's really um, cool. It depends on sort of when they're brought into the project, what they're tasked to do, stuff like that. Uh, but um, Celeste and Ashley and Anne and Michaela and uh, Hannah and Morgan, they were all working at the same time on pieces that were meant to connect mm-hmm. with each other in ways. So they kind of felt they had to be in pretty close contact and as a consequence of that, we ended up with an adventure full of goats. I mean, ghosts, goats, 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 bad goats. How did that come about? They just decided they liked goats. Um, and so they kept uh, plopping goats in their adventures. And they came to me and said, we need a mountain goat step block. And I said, sure. What for? You let them, you let, you were, you were amendable to this idea, the goats. Uh, I thought it was a team building exercise. (laughs) (laughs) I love this. Yeah. So there are goats all over the place in this adventure. Um, And I think the adventure is actually stronger for it. One of the joys of course, with working with them and working with Chad and others um, on the, on the book was these were all new voices for us. Uh, We had, they had done 
worked for third-party publishers and for Adventurers League and, and all kinds of stuff. But this was their first big hardbound D&D official book product. And uh, I love I love the new voices. And it you may not even be aware on, on some conscious level, but the adventure is as different as it is and feels as different as it is because of those new voices um, in the book. And... That's very exciting to me. And I love that you worked with so many, like you said, the new voices. We've seen them in the community. We've seen the work that they've been doing um, on their own and for other publishers for a long time. But I love that, you know, they're working on products that we're publishing. I imagine that getting a chance to work on a D&D product is probably a dream for a lot of people. So how... how But but you quickly discover, too, it's scary um, because... Yeah. we are very, we've got a very rigorous process and, you know, um, the demands of a D&D book are pretty high, significantly higher than, you know, anything else you're likely to work on D&D related. Yeah. What, so there's pressure. Well, so, but how would, um, like, what's, what's good advice for somebody to, to get their work noticed, to, to get on your radar or, you know, to like, what's a good way for a freelancer to get their foot in the door? I mean, one of the great things, when, when I was a little whippersnapper <laughs> and I was trying to get people's attention and, and show them that I could write and that I was professional and I could hit deadlines and all that kind of crazy crap. The, the, the vessel that I used, of course, were the print magazines, Dragon and Dungeon, um, because there was no internet back then. Yeah, <laughs> especially in Canada, <laughs> the, the, the polar wastelands of Canada. And so that experience now is basically emulated by the DMs Guild. And I think that is a great test platform for a number of reasons. One, uh, you're free to express your creativity. Also, you get a little bit of money out of it, which is great. You, have, you can have people review it, which gives you some useful information. And... Uh, you start to sort of understand the rigors of writing for D&D because there are guidelines that you have to follow. You can't just put anything up on DM's Guild. There are things that you have to do um, to be successful. And so you're kind of learning how to jump through hoops and you're making choices and decisions and you're, you're weighing your time and um, trying to create something that's going to be professional in appearance and resonate with people. And so you're kind of learning a bunch of lessons and even though I don't have a lot of time to spend on DMs Guild, it's very easy for me to reach out to some people and say, hey, what have you seen on DMs Guild lately that's really, really cool? And they'll give me stuff and then I can download it, take a look at it. Or I might just ask them, you know, you know you've done a number of edit, you've edited a number of stuff or you've, you've downloaded a lot of DMs Guild stuff. Who's doing the best work out there? And I might get a name or two and then sort of focus in on that and see what they do. Maybe reach out to them, ask them, you know, would they be interested? Get a feel for who they are as a person. See if they're the type of person who can do the work that we need to do in the schedule that we need it done. Um, I always equate it to like um, short films or, you know, short stories, right? If you're a, a fiction writer or a filmmaker. Yeah, yeah. And that you get all of the skills just on a much smaller scale um, bringing something to fruition uh, and, and even more so yes. with, with Dungeon Master's Guild because you have to you have to market it and you have to put, do layout and you have to mm-hmm. uh, you know do all of these smaller things that you don't necessarily think of when you're like I'm going to make a D&D product right and so yes. they learn all those lessons and then so when they when you're able to approach them you know they have some of that experience under their belt 
Exactly. And, and it all sort of interconnects. You realize that, you know, this person that you've just discovered has actually done work with some other people that you know, and, you know, it, it can become very kind of uh, wonderfully entangled in that way. And uh, our community is very cohesive and supportive. Yeah. And, um, you know, when I ask if I were to send out a tweet and say, hey, who, who, whose writing do you admire? Who's, who's doing great D&D work? The answers I get back are honest. Uh, they're, you know, they're pointing me uh, in good faith to people who seem to be doing good work. And if, I, if somebody's name comes up six, seven, 10, 20 times, that's a pretty good sign that maybe this is somebody we can work with in the future. Same thing on the editing side, by the way. Yeah, that's, we're, we're starting to use more editors now. And a lot of that's because they've been doing work in DMs Guild. So writing a D&D adventure is not like writing a novel. It's not like writing a screenplay. It's not like writing anything else, really. Yeah. And so that's why the DMs Guild is a great place to draw from. Right, because there hasn't been a, a pipeline, you know, in the, in the past. And now here it is. Uh, yeah. that's, that's a really yeah. good point. Yeah. Um, speaking of the community and how, you know, kind of tight-knit it can be, uh, the D&D celebration was just, uh, you know, a, a smashing success, bringing a lot of those people together uh, to do panels, to uh, play in the sandbox of Icewind Dale that you That's created. That's right. I played in Icewind Dale. Yeah, yeah you great. did. That's right. With uh, Brennan as my DM. How did that go? Swell. I played a tabaxi named Canatuna. Ah, I love uh, it. Because uh, I was showing off a new um, subclass from Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, the armorer subtype of the artificer. And... Basically, if you have a cat in armor, I thought Canatuna would be a good name. It's Brilliant. perfection. Yeah, <laughs> that's super fun. Sort of my my uh, my take my Icewind Dale take on Iron Man. <laughs> I like it. Well, Greg and I played in the epic um, at D and D celebration. How was that? That was really fun. Speaking of those, the knucklehead trout, we were at the the fishing rally, um, and I also played a tabaxi. Her name. Was Hissy Elliot? Is it with the? Te- oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a bard, though, right? I don't think you were playing a bard, were you? No, I, I should oh. have, but no, I was okay. not. But I actually, um, I had to make a new character really fast because Chris Lindsay told me that um, Aracokra weren't allowed <laughs> in the, with oh, the Adventurers okay. League rules, so I had to make a new character, and I, I totally made her wrong, and. She had nothing. Like it was just like, oh, I'm just gonna claw. Like I just couldn't okay. do anything until finally, like hour two and a half into the epic, people were like, "I think you made your character wrong. <laughs> you might have some spells you could cast. I think you might be able to like do a cantrip or something." No D really? characters this bad. <laughs> I know. <laughs> There's no bad characters, just bad players, Shelley. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, the weird oh, thing is in, in our game, we had three tabaxi. So we all created Ooh, our litter. characters independently. So we didn't have any idea what we were choosing until, you know, everybody had already made their choice. And it just so happened there were three cat people in the party. I don't know why, why that is. There seems to be cat people all over Icewind Dale. How did this it happen? It does not seem like a good place for cats. <laughs> I, I got to think they're pretty miserable up there. I would think so. I mean, as a person who has a cat, I saw her try to go outside in the rain yesterday and mm. she freaked out. So... I don't think she'd like snow very much. Not at all. But, but they do sure have fur. Likes, That's good. At they, least. they do have fur. Yeah. Knucklehead trout might be delicious for a cat. True. Yeah. Absolutely. If it, yeah. yeah, a big fishing town, that, that might be what actually draws them there. Oh, I yeah. should have called my character Can of Trout. I was dumb. 
Mm, can of tuna just has a better ring to it, I think. You got that visual. Yeah. yeah. It could be like somebody's last name, like John Canatuna. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I went to school with the John Canatuna. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, you know the Canatunas? <laughs> oh. The Canadian Canatuna. I think Tony was in my grade. Tony Canatuna. Yeah, Tony. <laughs> Mama Canatuna's meatballs. One the best. <laughs> Suddenly they're all monsters. <laughs> Oh man! I now I want to start. People. Isn't there like uh, it's in Zootopia or one of those Disney movies where like the uh, the uh, Godfather analogs? Uh, I, I feel like you could do that with Tabaxi yeah. for sure. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, super fun. Uh, all right, well I uh, can't wait for more people to get into Icewind Dale, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden, uh, and it has been a joy as always talking to you about. What's in this adventure uh, and uh, some of the creative juices that went into making it happen. So thank you, Chris. Uh, any, any last bit of advice or uh, last details about this that you want to get out there that we haven't been able to uh, in the past yet? Mm, nope. <laughs> we have completely drained this well. <laughs> this well is frozen over. He has moved on yeah. to four years yeah. from now. Yeah. It's true. It is. It is a is a bleak, cold place. Uh, but bleak everybody should place. watch the thing uh, for sure. And as uh, inspiration for running this, good. that's just good advice. General advice. Yeah. And as I always say, I always like to watch the uh, the first season X Files episode. That's an homage to the thing as well. Uh, yeah. Uh, Ice, which uh, has a whole bunch of. Uh, I, I just want to give a shout out to this piece of art because this snow golem that Richard oh. Witters did. Oh. Is wow. cute and creepy at the same time in a way I can't articulate. Also very relatable. Very I much so. Feel like you know, that dude right when, now. A little bit of inside information. When Richard first did this uh, this creature for me, it didn't look like this at all. It looked like this top heavy um, snow monster that spent all his time in the gym. He had like pecs and huge biceps and shoulders that were like eight feet wide and tiny little itty bitty legs. And I, I know that. I, told, I said to Richard, "You're Canadian. You know snow doesn't do that. It settles." <laughs> and so I said, "You know, uh, make it make him look more like a pear shape." And Richard said, "Oh, like me." And I said, "Yes." Oh. <laughs> wow, Richard is all over this book. <laughs> yeah. No, it was, and then he he turned and uh, he turned it around. The other thing he he had eyes, like indentations for the eyes, and I thought, "Oh, that." As soon as you give a creature eyes, uh, or, or sorry, as soon as you take away its eyes, it immediately looks unrelatable and creepy. And so I said, yeah. Richard, let's lose its eyes. Let's just have its mouth. And he said, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that. And then like two, two <laughs> oh, yeah. minutes, like two hours later, I get a new sketch. And it's completely different. And it's this. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is so perfect. That's how, that's, how create, that's, how, that's how creativity happens at Wizards. It's almost instantaneous in a way. Um, it just... Like two people put their heads together, boom, two hours and later. And the eyes are gone. It's, it, the eyes are gone and the creature's set. And this is, this is what people are going to be using for the next you know, 10, 15 years. Yeah. I love that. I love the, uh, the story guide to concept, you know, concept art, the story guide to the amazing uh, team of writers, to the layout that's done uh, by uh, the amazing Trish. team of Trish Yoakum yeah. and, and Kate Irwin Tristan. doing all the, the you know, internal art direction. It just, 
it really does become a, a team effort and it, it, even more so with this product. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of playtesters too. We playtested the crap out of this thing and their feedback uh, is, is, you know, we made hundreds, thousands of changes based on their feedback. Some small, some not so small. That's awesome. I love that. I, that's, that's been a tenet of, of fifth edition from, from the get-go, right? Yeah. D&D Next is making sure we have feedback and what's really good about that is actionable feedback. It's not just like, oh, yes. I didn't like this thing. It's, you know, why and how could that it be That is better? the key. That is the key. Um, we, you know, we get feedback of all kinds, but it's the actionable stuff, of course, that we're most interested in getting and that we act on. It's good stuff. Yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah, we got a lot of it. Some people said... This was so scary, but we like it. Uh, but That's I'm still time. crying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get over it. Don't worry. I'll be okay. The old vampire is very scary. Oh, good. But the Chewingas, the Chewingas, and all the fun people of Ten Towns. Just embrace them, love them as much mm. as you can. Yeah, I should also give a shout out to Kim Mohan, our tireless uh, uh, editor. Um, he retired from Wizards of the Coast many years ago, but still so continues to work on D and D. Yeah. And uh, he was the chief editor on this book and helped me out tremendously. I you feel got a like good team. His uh, his editing is vital uh, to <laughs> yeah. to keeping everything on track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mad skills. Mad skills. All right. Well, thank you again. Thank you to all the people who uh, contributed to this uh, product. It really uh, does look spectacular, and more people are playing it now, despite being isolated uh, uh, themselves in their homes. Um, and I hope I, I hope to start it with my um, my daughters. That they actually have been seeing all the imagery, and they what? were like, "Oh, I want to I want to do that." And I'm like, "All right, well, let's do it." Uh, so we're gonna be starting up uh, something hopefully this afternoon. We'll see. Oh, oh. yeah. Very exciting. Yes. Uh, Chris, if people want to pepper you with... Oh, sorry, Sean. But if they want to ask you questions (laughs) about uh, anything D&D related, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, They can send me a telepathic message or they can contact me on Twitter at ChrisPerkinsDND. Excellent. Thanks, Chris. Now we'll let you get back to work on uh, the adventure product from 2023. (laughs) He's like... (laughs) Said that already. It's on 2028. Awesome. Always great to talk to you. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Bye bye. Bye. Bye bye. I can't stop looking at the cover of this book and especially now knowing more about this adventure from talking to Chris. But now I, I, I mean, it's so cool to know like how her her image came to be and also. The, the the poor gentleman in the bottom right hand corner we now know yeah inspired by I, I feel like I've been looking at this cover for months and I have not yet realized that that was Mr Richard Witter is one of our yeah. uh, favorite people working on the D and D team a uh, fantastic artist and a wonderful Nova Scotian <laughs> one of the best Nova one of the Scotians. best Nova Scotians I know <laughs> Nova Scotian. Uh, but that is super fun. Uh, thank you to Chris again. I don't know why I keep saying thank you to Chris, but I just really because do we're love very grateful. To him. We're grateful people. It is true, and we love Chris and we love picking his brain pan. I have yeah. so many more questions just about him being a creative genius, but I guess I'll save them for when we talk about Curse of Strahd yeah. revamped. Getting a preview. Ah ah ah. 
so that's all fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us for this Dragon Talk. Shelly and I are eternally grateful. I don't know if we mentioned this quite enough, but uh, we're at more than 300 episodes on the RSS feed for Dragon Talk. That's a lot. That's a lot of episodes. We've been doing this for a long time, you and I, uh, and there was even a few episodes uh, before that, dozens of episodes before I started uh, being a part of it. Um, And it's always a joy to talk to you, Shelley. Always a joy to talk to you, Greg Tito, even when I'm supposed to be having a day off. This is your vacation. You are yeah. you are vacationing right now. I can but see this it. Is, this is vacation. Aw. It is. It is. Can yeah. you imagine if, if this was all we did was just talk to each other on microphone and drink coffee and, and, and kibitz about uh, how much we love yeah. our coworkers? Aw, man. Best job ever. For sure. Yeah. Uh, and we thank you all for listening and paying attention to our craziness and our weird voices for so long. <laughs> If you enjoyed that little uh, vocal you can styling, use that. use that in your game. Use that. I'm gonna just. Uh, I feel like that's maybe what a chewinga sounds like. That I actually, as it was coming out, I was thinking chewinga. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Um, but what I was gonna say is, let us know what you think about these episodes. Leave a review. They're on pretty much every platform for podcasts out there. And the more that you review, the more you get the word out about Dragon Talk, um, the more we will give you high fives. Um, and more people will find out what's happening in the world of Dungeons and & Dragons and get to hear the genius stylings of people like Chris Perkins and uh, Omega Jones and Celeste Conowich and Ashley Warren uh, and Jason Charles Miller, who's going to have an episode coming up soon. All of this amazing stuff uh, is what people want to hear, hopefully, about Dungeons & Dragons. So let us know. Um, You can reach out to us. Uh, I'm at Greg Tito on Twitter and Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. Shelly, where are you at? I am at Shelly Moo on Twitter and on Instagram. And if you want to find out everything about uh, D&D, go to DungeonsAndDragons.com. Perfect way to learn about what's happening and products that we've got coming down. Or just download Dragon Plus to your phone. That's what everybody should do. Uh, yep. It's got uh, bi-monthly issues full of previews and stories and uh, information. I'm actually, can I spoil this here? I'm writing a short story that might be in, in an upcoming issue of Dragon Plus. Yes! Which I'm very Yay! About. That's so exciting! It is exciting. It's fun to kind of stretch those those fiction writing muscles again. And yeah. uh, uh, now I feel like I have a deadline because I said it publicly. So that means I have to do it. Yes! Oh, good for you, Greg Tito. Oh, thanks, Shelley. I'm really excited. Can't wait to read it. Nice. Uh, I can't wait to finish it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's finish this Dragon Talk episode, and you can get working on it. Let's do it. Shout out Got to it. Ryan Marth and Lisa Carr from Siren Ryan, Sound. Ryan, Lisa! Who produce all of these amazing episodes and make them sound so delicious. And, of course, to Sean Mayofsky and Pell of Green on the Wizard side for putting together some fun video stuff, uh, even though... It's now Ryan and, and Lisa who post those videos. Uh, but they help out all the time. Everyone here listening deserves inspiration. I'm going to give you inspiration that you can use in your next game right now. Wow. And Shelly, what is going on with Drunky Two Shoes? I think she was, I don't she was trying to. You're about to get on a, sh- a boat. That was a fast moving boat. Yes. And you used your dinghy to get to a. Oh, yeah. Uh, a boat that might have been smuggling stuff off of uh, in, in, a, in a cove. 
And I, somebody, the watchman, I don't think has spotted Drunky, correct? Or I think you failed your stealth oh, check, didn't you? So maybe. maybe so I think they is. had just discovered you. What do you do? He's like, what's the... Uh, I act like I'm drowning. <laughs> and ask for help. <laughs> help! 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 Uh, That's you, what I You're in the boat and you're doing that, or do you jump into the water and then... <laughs> I jump into the water. You, maybe you can you fall into the water? Yes, I am like, oh, help, help. Right. Now roll me a deception check. Well, I rolled a twelve. That's I pretty don't good. Know. Yeah. Yeah. So you're 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 flopping around, and uh, uh, are you? Um, here, let me see. Oh, all right. So the person uh, says. Uh, Oh my gosh, we have a we have a, a cat overboard. Cat overboard. <laughs> and uh, you hear uh, perhaps a more authoritative voice uh, say, "Oh no, leave him be. Leave him be." No help. And we'll take but... up from there as your, as as the 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 screams and moans of Drunky Two Shoes pretending to drown fill our ears. That's a really sad way to end it. It's like a really sad way. <laughs> That's what cliffhangers are all about, bro. <laughs> all right. Awesome. We'll be back cats, next week. Cats don't Maybe. like water. Cats Some don't of like us water. will be. Yeah.